But even if you should suffer from righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Good morning. We begin a new section in Peter's letter this morning, and before we get into it, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for how much you bless us, how much you give us stories of your grace, your mercy, of your hope, even in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain for folks like Charmaine, that you've rescued them. In Jesus' name, amen. The past several weeks, we've been looking at this topic of submission. And beginning today, we're going to take a look at the topic of suffering, and so suffering has its many different forms, and so in the next several weeks, we'll be hitting various parts of it, but to start off this topic of suffering, we're going to look at suffering for righteousness sake. Now, for some context, we need to look at some church history, and Christians during the time of the Roman Empire, when Peter wrote this letter, they were suffering really greatly. Right, very hostile towards Christians, and a big reason for that was because of their faith in Jesus. So these folks couldn't deny Christianity because these folks were either eyewitnesses or they talked to eyewitnesses who saw Jesus' life, lived with Jesus, witnessed his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. So they couldn't be silent with the good news of the gospel because it happened right before them, or they kind of knew secondhand that it happened. So those in power were really hostile towards those in the Christian faith. And so you can see why Peter wrote these verses to these early followers of Jesus. Now, these early followers of Jesus, they testified and proclaimed a hope and assurance for following Jesus, and it was a given that they would share their faith. It was a given that they would evangelize. They couldn't deny the grace, the love, the mercies of God, the compassion of God, and so they needed to share this with others, even if it meant that they would be met with hostility. Because the only way a sinful person was going to be reunited with holy God was through Jesus. And so it brings us to this question. How many of us are active in evangelism? How many of us are active in sharing our faith in Jesus? In sharing the good news of the gospel? Because none of us is exempt from this task. The church is not meant to be a club where you come and you can just find community and friendship and that's where it stops. It needs to be more than this. It's great that many of us have found fellowship and friendship and community here but that doesn't excuse us from the work of evangelism. God doesn't call us to be insular as a church. Jesus died for the lost. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. When we became Christians, that's when evangelism starts. We are to be outwardly focused with a like heart, with like 
mindedness, just like to Jesus, to seek and save the lost. Peter wrote these verses to Christians because they were active in seeking and saving the lost, that they would suffer for righteousness' sake. And who's writing this letter to us? Have you ever thought about this? Peter. Peter who cut off Malchus' ear when they came to arrest Jesus, and then he took off when things just didn't turn out right with the way that he thought that they should be. Peter who was scared of junior high girls when he asked, like, you're one of his followers, aren't you? And like, no, I'm not. And like, he, he couldn't even stand up to junior high girls. Peter who denied Jesus three times in Caiaphas's court. He's the guy who wrote this. He wrote this. Right? Go back to the guy that was hiding in Caiaphas's courtyard and who was following Jesus at a distance, who was fearful and troubled and who was going to deny Jesus, even though he was following him for three years, as his Lord. He's going to deny him. And you notice the change from Peter in Caiaphas' courtyard to the Peter who wrote this letter. I mean, isn't that just a testimony of God's grace? This is amazing. Because Peter himself knew how badly he screwed things up. Right? Writing this very letter, can you imagine what he was thinking as he was writing this letter? Having flashbacks of how badly he messed things up. As he's writing this stuff, and to write this letter would be just outright hypocrisy if Peter didn't change. If it wasn't for the grace of God working in his life. Because he would recall Things like what Jesus said in Luke twenty-two thirty-one: Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Can you imagine what he thought about that? I thought I would never mess up. I thought I was really going to stand up for Jesus. And then Jesus told me that when I turn around again, I strengthen my brothers. Well, I, I messed up. I'm turned around again. It's time to strengthen my brothers. And Jesus knew Peter would fail. He knew that he would repent, that he would turn. He would strengthen his brothers. Peter would remember having breakfast with Jesus. Remember on the seashore there, having breakfast? And, and Jesus said to Simon Peter, John chapter 21, verses 15 through 17, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. That's what this letter is. That's what this letter is. Peter feeding Jesus' lambs. Feeding Jesus' sheep. Feeding us. This is his response to Jesus' instruction. Strengthening his brothers. And the only way Peter would have written these words was because he was truly forgiven. That he indeed experienced the grace of God. Because this guy failed big time. And this is the awesome thing. But Jesus. Right? And perhaps some of you, you, you failed big time. But Jesus. 
Just insert that in there. Where he comes into our lives and he redeems what is broken. He redeems what is weak. He redeems what is a failure. Now within the context of 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter wrote about suffering for righteousness sake. And I want to remind us that it's in this context that 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 14 through 15 was written. It says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. I also want to remind us that Peter has written a lot about doing good. Right in the past several weeks, we've talked many times about Peter writing about how Christians are to be aggressively, proactively doing good. In last week's message, we referred to that proactively, aggressively doing good. And this doing good is mentioned several times in Peter's letter. Chapter 2, verse 14. Chapter 2, verse 20. Chapter 3, verse 6. Chapter 3, verse 11. Christians do good. That's what we do. What we're doing in the Philippines is nothing out of the ordinary. What we do for our community is nothing out of the ordinary. This is just something that we do. We aggressively pursue good. And here it is again, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? We are zealous for what is good. We are to, verse 16, have a good conscience and good behavior. Any of you convicted about this? Because are you aggressively, proactively in the pursuit of good, in doing good? Do I have a good conscience? Do I have good behavior? And some of you may say, oh, yes, I do, whatever. But what would your spouse say? That's the true test. Because some of you are delusional. Or what would your kids say? Ha <laughs> ha! Mine better say good things, and I got sick from them. What would your colleagues, friends, other family, what would complete strangers say? Are we passionately, enthusiastically doing good as followers of Jesus? And if we are aggressively, proactively, zealously doing good, what harm is there in that? It's a life of blessing. Our zealousness for what is good is a blessing to others. It's not to say that we won't be harmed for doing good. Because we do. It happens to our church. In the middle of you doing good, you've been harmed. But Peter wrote, verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Now, it doesn't make sense for people to harm you when you're doing good to them, does it? It makes no sense at all. It's like that saying, right? Don't bite the hand that feeds you, that you know that thing. I don't know how it goes. I'm Chinese, so forgive me. Um, but it doesn't make sense to me. Why would you bite the hand that feeds you, right? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you're going to be blessed. And suffering is part of life in a following world. Now, I'm not attempting to explain away suffering right now. I'm just explaining the fact. That suffering is part of our world. That this is just part of who we are. This is part of what we experience. And it doesn't always make sense. It doesn't make sense for someone you are doing good to 
to in turn harm you, but it happens. And even if we suffer for righteousness sake, we will be blessed. Now here's something about suffering. No one's exempt. No one's exempt. Now whether you're a Christian or not, suffering exists for both. Christians deal with the same medical issues. They deal with the same pain. They deal with the same suffering as those who don't follow Jesus. We deal with the same stuff. Right? The rain rains on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Somewhere in Matthew. We suffer through the same stuff. And some Christians may wonder, you know, how can that be? How can someone who trusts in Jesus, loves Jesus, follows Jesus, suffer the same pain and experiences as someone who denies Jesus, rejects Jesus, even hates Jesus? Doesn't make sense, does it? And I wish I had a great answer that everyone in this room would be pleased with. I don't have that answer. Only a minority would be pleased with my answer. And I think the true answer lies when we meet God face to face. It's one of those things where you ask him that, that he can give you the answer. I've just been pounding in my head to try to figure out something that would be like kind of universally true, that wouldn't be kind of shallow and kind of skim things over. I'm just not able to do that. Now, the Bible recognizes that suffering is part of humanity. That all of us experience it and that no one is exempt from disability or pain or suffering or death, sickness, disease, and a host of other things that humanity experiences. Those are things all of humanity deals with and suffers with. And then there's also the suffering that Christians endure for righteousness' sake. All of the early Christians suffered. Many of them suffered for righteousness' sake. You look at Jesus. Look at Jesus, a really good guy by all accounts, even from people who don't follow him, yet he still suffered. He suffered as part of humanity. Have you ever thought about this as just human terms? Losing your earthly father kind of prematurely. I don't know how early he lost Joseph, but it was probably earlier than most people because his mom lived a while longer, right? And so going through that and suffering through that, or how about this, having your siblings reject you and not be part of your life and just not wanting to be with you, thinking you're nuts, and going through that kind of human suffering. And then there's the suffering for righteousness sake that he went to, right? Peter wrote, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Now, what's the context here? During the Roman Empire, everyone was to worship Caesar, the emperor. And so this word fear, there's a synonym here, reverence, right, which we've talked about before. Psalm 111, verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's about reverence for God. So when Peter wrote, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, I don't think Peter was just saying, don't be scared. I think he was saying, don't revere those idols. And I know that everyone else is doing it around you, and if you don't do it, I know that you're going to get into serious trouble, but don't revere Caesar as God. Yes, be subject to him as your civic leader, under the human institution as he wrote all about submission, but he's not God. 
Verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with all gentleness and respect. And so he starts it out with, in your hearts. Now the folks who first received Peter's letter could not worship in public. They couldn't gather like this. And just like so many in the world today who can't just worship Jesus in public, and just like any of us, what happens in our hearts, how we worship God privately is of such importance because that's where true worship begins. It begins in you. Because you can't truly participate in public worship without being a private worshiper. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So, Peter told them not to worship their idols, don't worship Caesar, and because they don't worship Caesar, they're going to get into serious trouble. And there is cause for fear because you're going to be persecuted for those beliefs. You're going to be arrested, you're going to be imprisoned, there's going to come a time of interrogation, and during that interrogation, be prepared to make a defense. He's using legal terms here. To make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. So yes, Peter wrote to the persecuted church, but you notice this. The words always and anyone. So he wasn't just writing to them during that time in time of persecution during the Roman Empire. He's writing to a much wider group of people than just them. This is for all time. This is always. And it's to make a defense to anyone. So how is this done? How are we to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you? You look at the first part of verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. See, it begins in your heart. Many times we look at this verse and we go straight to the reasoning. We go to like, oh, we need to study more books. We need to study more apologetics so that we can talk to people how to defend our faith. Because that's where we go first. But you look at where this goes. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. It begins in the heart. The heart denotes the center of all physical, of all spiritual life. It is the essence of who we are as people. See, when we fall in love, it's a heart matter. You do things based on your heart, like moving to Southern California because your girlfriend is going to school there. I'm so saddened by that, by the way. Because I love that guy. I'm going to let him have it tonight because he's not here this morning. But that's what you do. You, you just naturally do things like that. You don't even think about it until, you know, you just let me know after. So I can't talk you out of it. <laughs> and you just kind of talk about your love interest so naturally because it just kind of flows out of your heart. It just flows out of your heart. Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Have you noticed this? You don't have to ask parents of babies to talk about their babies. Never. They just do. They just do. You don't have to ask people who are in love to talk about one another. 
Never. And if someone crosses the line to offend you by speaking poorly about your baby or the one you love, you've never taken a class on how to defend your baby. Have you? You've never taken a class on how to defend your boyfriend or girlfriend when somebody crosses the line of insulting them or saying, oh, that's not true, that love is stinky or whatever. You've never taken a class. Your baby is ugly. What? <laughs> you guys make a terrible couple. Excuse me? You've never enrolled in a class to defend your baby class. Defend your boyfriend-girlfriend class. You've never done that. Why do we do this with churches? Oh, to defend my faith, I need to take that apologetics course. I need to take that evangelism class. I need to read all these books. I need to go to that seminar. I need to watch these videos. I need to go to these workshops on how to defend my faith and how to share my faith. Did you do that when you had a baby? Did you do that when you fell in love? You didn't because it just came out of your heart. It's natural. See, none of the technical stuff that you gain matters if it's not here. It just doesn't matter. It's all stale. It doesn't matter. Because someone with the right heart of Jesus is like a proud parent of their baby. It's natural. Or someone who's just in love with their boyfriend, girl. It's natural. It comes out of their heart, out of their mouth. It just flows out. They don't need any manual on how to defend their loved one or how to share about their loved one. They just do. They just do. When it comes to evangelism, I believe that most people here know how to do it. You know. You have all the knowledge you need. To do it. But why isn't it done? It's here, fortunately. It's a heart problem. It's a heart problem. John chapter 7, verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Back to verse 15 here, 1 Peter chapter 3. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. That phrase there, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. This is where always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that in you, that's where it begins. It begins in your heart. Now, when I've shared the gospel with people, the vast majority of the time, they don't ask me theological questions. The vast majority of the times. The only times I get theological questions is if that person has a church background or if that person has some sort of faith background other than Christianity, but they have some other faith background. And so those are the only times that I've been asked theological questions. But if it's someone who's never heard the gospel before, who doesn't have any faith background, which is most of the people that I've spoken to, they've never asked me a theological question. Never. But you know what they do recognize or what they do inquire about? The heart. My heart. Because people notice how you treat your spouse. People notice how you treat your children. People notice how you treat strangers and kids and friends and all this kind of stuff. 
people do ask why we serve the homeless, why we serve refugees, human trafficking victims. And rather than getting all technical about our evangelism and arming ourselves with the right answers, we need to focus on our hearts. I want to share a really fun evangelism experience I had at Disneyland. I was there a few weeks ago when we were on vacation and one of our stops was Disneyland since some really generous friends of ours gave us tickets. Thank you, friends. 130 bucks for an adult. 120 for children. $10 difference. Dumb. Anyway, we're on Main Street getting ready for the parade, right? So I noticed this family. I noticed this really cool guy, really cool woman, hipster couple, like much cooler than I am. And so they have this five-year-old daughter and I just see how much they're loving this kid and they're blowing the bubble gun with the neon thing and they're telling their kid to share and stuff like that. I'm like, wow, that's awesome. Look at this family. And so what do I do? I talk to God and I ask God, God, how about them? And the thing is, I didn't hear him say no. So I was like, oh, I'm doing it then. If you're not telling me no, I'm going to do it. <laughs> so I did it. I go there and I start having a conversation with them. And usually when I have a conversation, I try to get it to where we talk about natural things and what we do for work. Because when we talk about what we do for work, it naturally goes into, I'm a pastor. And the door's wide open. <laughs> That's just my tactic. That's what I do all the time. So we talk about, oh, what do you do for work? Oh, blah, 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 blah. And what do you do for work? Let me share with you what I do for work. So we're doing this, and, and then I'm talking, I'm talking, and then I come to find out this guy's been a youth pastor for 12 years in Santa Barbara. And now he attends a church that my friend pastors down there. Well, I'm kind of bummed out now. <laughs> You're already a Christian. Why am I talking to you? Like, I... I can talk to Christians all the time. Like, this is nothing. This is dumb. I'm like, oh, great. God bless you. Like, uh, I wanted to talk to someone who didn't know Jesus. But then we keep talking. So I find out that he's actually been out of ministry for a few years. But he and his wife have been recently praying and hearing from God that he's not done with pastoral ministry. So in my disappointment of not being able to evangelize this guy and his family, I move into pastoral care. And for anyone who wants to go into full-time vocational ministry, I really, really recommend that you don't unless you've really been called because it is 24-7. Even at Disneyland, you're at work. <laughs> it's just, you're always working. It never stops. Never! Never! Sabbath? Seriously, God? No. No, Sabbath? <laughs> praying for people. I don't believe it. Anyway, this guy, this is so awesome. He's now one of our assistant pastoral candidates. He's interviewing here. We just interviewed him last Tuesday because he contacted me and he was like, you know, me and my wife, we've been praying and we feel led. We feel led. And so he, along with Stefan and many other candidates that we've been praying about to see who's a good fit here and to minister here, they're part of the process. So please be in prayer for our church as we look for a full-time assistant pastor. And I share that story with you because it's just a fun attempt at evangelism. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
There's no technical thing. Main Street, Disneyland. You just do it. And to break down any hesitation that some of you may have that you don't know enough, because the most important thing is the heart. It's not how much you know. What you know is important. We're going to get to that. It's part of it. But the very first thing mentioned here, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord. Now, first begins with heart. Now we're going to go to our second thing. Honor Christ the Lord. Is Jesus Christ Lord to you? Now what is the definition of Lord? It is He whom a person or thing belongs about which He has power deciding. Do you belong to Jesus? Does He have the power to decide your life? That when He tells you to go or to come or to do, that's what you do. So we see that always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you begins with the heart, and then it's about obedience, recognizing Him as Lord. Now we just finished this mini-series in 1 Peter about submission or authority, and the centurion in Matthew chapter 8 knew exactly what Jesus meant about this. Right, Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 5. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And you jump down to verse 13. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Do we do as Jesus says? Because, you know, some... We may have the heart, but we're being disobedient. And some may be obedient, but you don't have the right heart, which is not a good thing either. The average Christian here is not sharing their faith in Jesus. You're not. I don't say this to condemn you or to judge you for your inactivity. I share this with you so that you can do a checkup on your heart. It's not because you don't know enough. Something's going on in your heart. And you need to take care of that. And so then you can decide as an act of obedience whether you're going to be obedient to Jesus or not and call him Lord. So to take care of your heart and then decide if you're really going to be obedient or not. Stop making excuses that you can't, you're not prepared, or you're not whatever, because we haven't even got to that yet. Do you have the right heart? And are you being obedient? Always being prepared. Now we've seen some qualities of a follower of Jesus and what they're to be, right? A right heart, a will to obey, and then always being prepared. That there's a watchfulness. There's an effort to be ready. 
a preparedness, things for us to do to be ready, to be attentive to opportunities that God has given us. And those opportunities are plentiful, aren't they? Matthew chapter 9, verse 37, Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. You see how these first three things, when we're looking at evangelism, nothing has talked about how good you are at doing it or what you need to know or anything like that. We've not even talked about any of that stuff yet. To make a defense to anyone who asks you, we haven't even talked about the technical stuff yet. It's been your heart. It's been about obedience. It's about a watchfulness, a preparedness. So don't make excuses that you don't know enough. The first three things that you really need to have, you already have it. It's not until this fourth element that we get into the more technical stuff. Right here. To make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason. Now this is where we get into some of this stuff, right? And so the English word for reason was translated from the Greek word logos, and it's the word used in respect to the mind. The mental faculty of thinking, reasoning, calculating, meditating, it's where we get our English word logic. So while we are putting forth effort in our attentiveness to opportunities, there's also an effort in our studies about the things of God. Now, how many of you are experts in your field of study? Like in your job, you are really good at what you do. Oh, Lord, have mercy, nobody. We are bad witnesses out there. Oh, my Lord. Some of you know your job really, really well. You're just extremely humble. But you know what you do really, really well, whether that's in science or investments or finances or whatever job that you do, you do it awesome. Here you can be humble about it, but when you get back to work, that is your testimony as a Christian, that you do your job awesome. Do you know, have you studied so that you can make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you as much as you have put into your field of expertise? How many years did you put into your field of expertise? How many hours did you have to invest into it to be proficient at what you do? Now this is the scary thing. How many of you have been Christians longer than you've been working in your field of expertise, but you're better at your work than you are in being a Christian. Ouch. We looked at the heart, we looked at obedience, we looked at attentiveness to opportunities, and then that's not to say that we don't study and ready ourselves with our effort into study so that we have reasons to share the hope that is in us. We do that. Christians aren't dumb. All Ivy League schools were started by Christians except for one. Did you know that? Christians love higher learning. People are claiming out there like, oh, they're dumb. They don't know about science. They don't, Man, your university wouldn't be there without us. Please. Right? And this is where I get convicted, verse 15. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. <laughs> this one's hard for me. The right heart, the will to obey, a watchful effort, a studious effort, all with gentleness and respect. Woo! 
Because this is easy to get worked up over, isn't it? Because you have the right heart, but someone insults your baby or someone insults your sweetheart. Hard to maintain gentleness and respect, isn't it? It's the same thing for obedience. You act in obedience, but someone is hostile toward your act of obedience. Hard to keep gentle. Hard to keep respectful composure there. You're looking out for people. You're attentive to stuff and you're caring for the spiritual welfare of people, but others are hostile towards you when you're approaching them about these eternal matters. And you've put a lot of effort into learning what you've learned to have others belittle your belief. All of these things make it difficult to keep a gentle and respectful posture. But you look back at who wrote this. This is what I find so fascinating. Who wrote this? Hothead Peter wrote this. I mean, have you ever thought about this? The guy cut someone's ear off. And he's talking about gentleness and respect. Are you serious? I've never cut anybody's anything off. I never, so I cut hair. I've cut hair. That's it. But I didn't even do that out of malice or anything. I did it because my kids need a haircut. But do you see this? Because this is Peter who just kind of says whatever's on his mind. His emotions are just all out here. He's super hothead guy. You'd never associate gentleness and respect with Peter. Never. Would you? You look at Peter and like, oh, gentle. Oh, Peter, respectful guy. Respectful Peter. Never. But you see how much he changed from before Jesus' resurrection to after Jesus' resurrection. Isn't that incredible? Just from a sociological apologetic. That's pretty good evidence that Christianity is true, isn't it? Give the reason. Give a defense for why the hope is in you. This is pretty good, isn't it? When we share the gospel, it is just extremely simple. It's simple. It's real life stuff. It's feeding the hungry. It's clothing the naked. It's giving water to the thirsty. It's serving people in a country far away that we don't even know the person, but we love them in Jesus' name. It's so simple. It's talking about cheating on your taxes to somebody. Just like Jesus did with Zacchaeus. Simple stuff. It's about talking to someone about sleeping around with someone who they're not married to. Just like Jesus did. If you look at Jesus and when he's talking to people just in the Bible, how much of that is theology? How much theology does Jesus share with people? He's just doing real life stuff. See, you only get into that theology stuff with people of faith, right? Look at Jesus. Jesus gets into theology stuff with like Nicodemus. How can a guy be born again? That's theology. It's goofy stuff. Speaking of that, next week we're going to get into really deep theology, okay? So I'm not talking down on it. Next week, many more of you are going to fall asleep. But seriously, we're going to get really deep, heady theology next week. So I'm not downplaying that it's important. What I'm saying is some of you think that it's so important that it's stopping your evangelism when it's really your heart, obedience, and attentiveness before you even get to the technical aspects of those things. 
Most of the time when Jesus is out ministering to people, it's just the everyday stuff that is happening, and he ministers to them right where they're at. Oh, people are hungry. Feed them. It's not complicated stuff. And we've been given so much by God. We are free to worship here. And we've been blessed with so much freedom. Freedom as to what we want to read and learn what we want. We come to church as we please. What are we doing with what we've been given? Are we going? Are we doing? Are we following his lead? Heart, obedience, being aware of what's happening around us, and studying. That's how you talk to people about your faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, your grace. Thank you for using Peter, such a hot-headed sort of guy who is now talking to us about being gentle and respectful, and just the irony in that and Lord, thank you that you can redeem things, that you can regenerate things. I pray, Lord, for people here that uh, those who are in difficult spots don't lose faith in you. They can hold on to your grace, your love, your mercy for them. In Jesus' name, amen.